0: I'm turning this evening to the book of Ezra, chapter 7, and the very first verse of the chapter. Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, and so on, to verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylon, and the subject this evening, in this particular chapter, we may give to it the title, The Minister's Credentials and Life, because most of the information is to do with that, to do with Ezra. In fact, unusually, in these narratives, these records, you wouldn't think that the, uh, uh, all that was accomplished was entirely the work of God of course it was and it does say so but it doesn't emphasize that you wouldn't think that all that was accomplished was also due to the uh, efforts of the people you'd think it was entirely through Ezra his was the instrumentality And his was the life and the conduct which determined the measure by which God blessed them. That's unusual, but it's intentional in this passage because it focuses one's mind on the instruments of God and their responsibility before him and their significance. So we'll proceed through the passage and see all that refers to the uh, credentials and the life, in this case, of the priest, preacher, leader, and in modern times, preachers, pastors, office bearers in the Church of Christ. Verse 6. First of all, then, uh, we begin back in 538 B.C., The beginning of the Book of Ezra, chapters 1 to 6, are about the return of the 42,000 plus, the first group of returnees from captivity in Babylon. And that took place during the reign of Cyrus, emperor or king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And you'll remember, of course, that the Babylonian Empire had fallen The empire of the Medes and the Persians had taken its place. The Medo-Persian alliance had brought about the fall of Babylon and the fall of that mighty empire. The people of God had been in captivity in Babylon for their nominal 70 years period. And then there's the decree of Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king that they should return to Jerusalem and the temple should be rebuilt and so on and in that year 538 BC the first party the main party of returnees go back to Jerusalem. And they are led by Zerubbabel who was the appointed governor of Judah and Jerusalem and uh, Uh, Joshua or Jeshua as he's called in this book was the high priest at the time. Well now between chapters 6 and 7 you move on to an event which took place some 80 years after the first return and it's going to be the second party of returnees but it's much much smaller and this is now in 458 BC, some 80 years later, and altogether, uh, the people who returned on the second party were coming up towards 8,000, really very few, and not many priests, and very few Levites. But anyway, most people, most people in the Babylonian captivity, most of the Israelites had settled and were comfortable and didn't want to return. And their comforts and their homesteads that they'd built and prepared meant much more to them than the uh, God-given purpose of their nation and their people, and they didn't want to return. But anyway, this is the party that went up under Ezra, and we're going to be looking at him from verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a ready scribe. The modern versions put it differently, but ready, it comes from fluid or quick scribe. Obviously he was erudite, he was very accomplished in the law of Moses and preached and expounded it publicly. Uh, he was a priest, we're told that repeatedly. Uh, In fact, the opening verses, which I've skimmed over, of chapter 7, give his lineage, his descent, all the way from Aaron. It's a very abridged list. There are 16 generations covered, when there were really about 27 to 30 generations, which is a very considerable time This is all the way from Moses. But uh, uh, the uh, more obscure priests in the line are left out. So, for example, uh, uh, this is a small technicality. Ezra is described as the son of Sarai. Well, he wasn't the son of Sarai. He was the great-grandson of Sarai. Uh, Why the jump? In the manner in which these uh, uh, lists are written, it's perfectly legitimate to call him the son, that covers the grandson and the great grandson also. But uh, several people, are, fathers, are left out of the sequence here because Sirah is the last famous one. He was the high priest uh, at the time that uh, Nebuchadnezzar invaded. And Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and Sariah was taken into captivity and put to death by Nebuchadnezzar. So he's famous. His successors were somewhere in captivity in Babylon and we don't read anything particularly of them. So it's natural that this would be an abridged list of his descent But why is it there at all? Why is it elaborately traced that Ezra was descended from Aaron, the high priest? Well, it's for a reason. And the reason is his ministry and his appointment is in line with the law of God. He is an authentic priest. So his descent is given everything about this return as with the first returnees everything about this and the blessing they're given and the way God is with them is going to show that it's almost a divine response to the accurate application and obedience of God's word so the it's not any old leader, it's not a leader just say democratically arrived at it's an authentic leader it's an authentic priest and so his descent is as fully as you could reasonably expect mapped out at the very beginning of chapter seven this is all about the minister's credentials and this is part of his calling Ezra as the leader of this party and the one who's going to do so much now to spur things forward in Jerusalem is appointed strictly in accordance with God's law. And so it is today. That was the Old Testament order. Now in the New Testament, you have uh, uh, prescribed a leadership within the church and a teaching ministry. And whoever legitimately and properly teaches in a congregation in the church of Jesus Christ must be appointed or arrived at in line with God's rules and this is very often neglected nowadays so there they're doing it precisely even tracing his genealogy to prove one of his qualifications He is an authentic priest. In our case, we have the pastoral epistles. We have uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, for example, and all the rules laid down for the appointment of officers. Now, let me give you an instance of where people go astray today. People may say, Oh, I'd like to have a Bible study in my home. Sounds very noble or uh, get 30, 30 people or 10 people or whatever uh, together from the church and then we'll have a discussion group and somebody will chirp up and we'll have an unofficial teaching session. Well, quite apart from the practical difficulties of this, you could have seven or eight such groups in the church and all of them could be led by forgive my language for the moment some crackpot somebody who's going to teach wild things crazy things well says the New Testament you can't have that so you have 1st Timothy chapter 3 the qualifications of the teacher how you know that he's the person you should select how you appoint him how you go about it that's not there for nothing So somebody says, well, well, why can't we? Why can't I go home and organize a home Bible study? With me, I rather fancy it, you might say. I will be the teacher. I was saved last week, so I'm going to start a Bible study this week and teach. Well, because you're not conforming to First Timothy chapter 3, which has an appointed ministry, a prepared ministry, a properly recognized ministry, to safeguard against all the things that might happen. Why are there so many crazy things being taught at the moment? Because the rules of God are neglected in so many places and ignored. So here they go to great lengths to establish that Ezra is an authentic priest, and that's only one of a number of qualifications that are listed here. Or you can go on the internet and you'll get any number of seemingly wholesome women preachers. Well, where are they in the the scripture? Now, this is not to say that women would not be perfectly capable of being preachers. This is not to suggest that, I, I dare say, if there were women preachers appointed by God, it's arguable that they may be better than men preachers. It's not a matter of capability, it's just what God has designed and what he has ordained, and he has distributed the role, roles. I won't go into this at length tonight and determine what shall take place. It's not for us with our feeble minds to say, that's because in some ways women aren't up to it. That's terrible to say that because the scripture doesn't say that. It gives theological reasons why God has ordered things in this way. But to come back to the point, you've got scores of women ministers. And they're not appointed by God. They're nowhere to be seen in First Timothy Chapter 3, or anywhere else. So I come back to this. Ezra went up from Babylon, for he was an accomplished and an erudite scribe, teacher in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his request. Evidently, Ezra had made an application and a proposal to the emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire, that he would now lead a party to go back to Jerusalem with further returnees and to hasten all the work that needed to be done there. He was known at court. You get hints of this through the book. He was, he was known in the royal court. He was there. He makes this application. But you wonder how much Esther had to do with this, because between chapters six and seven of the book of Ezra, chronologically, between chapters six and seven comes, if you like, the book of Ezra. It doesn't, but that's where it's positioned. Ahasuerus, the king, in the book of uh, Esther, is exactly the same person as Artaxerxes here in the book of Ezra. One and the same person. In terms of time, the events concerning Esther took place between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra. So when Ezra makes his application to the emperor, did Esther, his wife, have something to do with the king's mind being favourable towards it? Well, it's only speculation, but it's very tempting speculation. Well, Ezra was a priest and he was a scribe. And then at the end of verse 6, the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And that's a marvellous statement. According to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. What were his qualifications? Well, we've covered that he was a priest. We've observed that he was skilled in the exposition, the understanding and exposition of the law. If You go down to verse 10, you see this amplified. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgment. This was in his heart and he had the qualifications to do it. He evidently prayed for faithfulness. He prayed to see the applications of the word. He prayed for effectiveness in teaching them to make them memorable and to help people to see the necessity of obeying them he complied with them himself it's all there in verse 10 if you analyze the verse well as in first timothy chapter 3 though this is centuries before he was called he was ratified by the priests and the levites they all agree with him in this chapter that he's the man who should go. He's equipped by God and given ability to teach. He's confirmed by his behavior. He's a man of holiness. All the things that you find in First Timothy chapter 3 are here in the qualifications of Ezra also. He's endorsed by the people and many go with him and he's circumstantially approved. He gets this great letter from the king and all the authority he needs to go on this mission. He's nominally an envoy for the king. The passage tells us that he's given the task of inquiring, of making a report, an assessment He's going to go back to the court of Artaxerxes and say exactly what the situation in Jerusalem is. But while there, he's given the authority and the funding to advance the work and construction work. The temple is already built and it's been opened, but now other work has to be done in the city. But I read on from verse seven. And there went up some of the children of Israel. The sum is in italics, but it's it is sad that it has to be there, only some of them. And of the priests and of the Levites. This is a summary verse. When you get to chapter eight, the journey is described in more detail and the exact numbers of the people who went and who refused to go or who would only go when they were given a personal invitation and so on. And among them, you read about the Levites that they'd got so far on the journey and they'd pitched their first camp. The journey from Babylon to uh, uh, Jerusalem would take them four months as the crow flies, it's only about 520 miles, but they would have to go via Carchemish and go round a mountain and uh, through a a treacherous valley and the total journey distance would be about a thousand miles. It would take four months, don't forget, they were not an army, they were civilians, with wives and children, little children. They had to camp every so often, and so it was a long trip. But uh, they'd, they'd got to their first camp, about 11 or 12 miles, and they stopped to check that everybody's with them and to count the numbers, and they make a discovery. No Levites will come to this in chapter 8. No Levites... How are they going to successfully continue with the ministry and all the functions that only Levites can do if none of them have come? So a party is sent back to Babylon to encourage Levites to come too. And they found Levites, we'll go into this another study, not many, but a fair small number, who were willing to go but they were waiting to be asked and chapter 8 you could focus on it just to analyse the different responses of people to the call of God some would go just on public proclamation without any personal contact a general public appeal others would wait until somebody approached them Others would wait longer until they had a special approach. We really need you. We've got none of your type. And then they'd come. So you may say, there are the willing, there are the not so willing, there are the too settled and the too comfortable, even among those who in the end will respond and make up the 8,000. And then there are more who won't stir themselves at all. It's quite interesting. It's all there in chapter 8, the responses and the measures taken. But verse 7 in chapter 6 anticipates all that. And the Levites. But at the beginning they weren't there. And the singers and the porters and the nethanims. Well, they were descended from from Canaanites, who were servants and undertook the most menial tasks in the running of the temple and so on, unto Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. And then here are the details verse 9, the end of the verse, according to the good hand of his God upon him this is a phrase which is repeated through the chapter right to the very end the hand of God was upon him two things to notice the hand of God is spoken of throughout the chapter and I opened with this as being upon Ezra not upon the party but upon Ezra now It's delicate to say this because there is no doubt that among the Lord's people in a church today, well, the hand of God is upon the whole church. You don't single out the minister and say, the hand of God is upon that church because it's upon him. He is special. He is unique. That's not a scriptural view at all. And yet that is the way this chapter works. Because if you're putting the focus on any instrument of God, whether it's an individual person witnessing, whether it's a preacher, or what you're putting, he has got to understand the level of his responsibility. It is as though the chapter is saying, if Ezra had fallen, everything would have fallen. You could write another chapter and say, if the people had fallen, everything would have fallen. But this chapter is focusing on the the leader. If he falls, everything will fall if there's anyone here and it's forming in your heart that you perhaps God would have you preach or minister or be a pastor do reckon with this there's going to be a burden put upon you and the burden is this things can be said to stand or fall with you Are you prepared to lead a separated life? Are you prepared to forego many perfectly legitimate relaxations, pressures, associations? Because that's what you're called to, to focus tirelessly on making known Christ and teaching the Word of God. Are you going to be a person who would say, if I'm criticised, or too many people at any time uh, are disgruntled with me for one reason or another, I will not want to do this. I'm not prepared to look for the good in their complaints. I'm not prepared to... or If uh, you are not able to get the same level of fellowship as other members of the fellowship have with one another, if you should find yourself isolated in some way by your work of necessity, are you prepared for that? I'm just trying to find examples. If you're called to this work, then A lot depends upon you and you've got to stand and you can't falter. You've got to lead in the life of faith of the church. Everything that happens in your life, I'm not saying we're successful at this, but this is the responsibility placed upon us. Everything in your life has got to be processed by faith because you are the preacher to, or the pastor to, a company of people who are called to live like that. Every blow, every knock, every difficulty has got to be processed by faith. And you've got to set the example in that and never waver from it. And lead the people in the life of trust and faith. And this chapter is emphasising this, the responsibility which comes upon Ezra. And he's a kind of prototype or pattern for us. The hand of God was upon him. The direction of God. The hand of God is his direction. And today there are ideas going round in the churches that there's no such thing as Christian guidance I've mentioned this just try to take your decisions in the light of the Word of God But marry who you want to, it's your choice do the work you want to do, it's your choice the hand of God means the direction of God this applies to every Christian we must be available to God, we must be asking Him what He would have us do. I won't now expound the procedures we follow to find the solution to that, but we are available to Him. It's what He wants. Oh, I would prefer to do this sort of work or that sort of work, because I enjoy this better than I enjoy that. Ah, but what? What would the Lord do? We, how will he lead? What is his will and purpose for me? The hand of God is a big phrase in this book was upon Israel and upon the people also. But primarily in this chapter it's upon Ezra. It's direction. It's preservation. It's a constraining hand. It presses him on. When the hand of God is upon us, we're kept moving. Human nature says to us, oh, but uh, I, I do this, I do that, I do something else for the Lord, now I'm going to take a little rest, now I'm going to switch off for a while, now I'm going to coast. The hand of God is constraining. It's always there, a gentle pressure. No, you're moving forward. You can't stand still in the Christian life. You can only go forward or backwards. You can't stand still. The hand of God is a constraining hand. You know the meaning of the word? To constrain somebody is the exact opposite of to restrain somebody. Sometimes the word is used either way these days, and that's not right. If you constrain, you do the opposite of restrain. You pressure forward. The hand of God was upon Ezra, kept him moving forward all the time, reaching forward. The hand of God sometimes restrained. And there's something you feel you'd wish to do or would like to do and it may be noble and good but you're frustrated by all kinds of circumstances because God's restraining hand comes. That is not for you. That someone else's calling may be. I've had that many times in life there's something that seemed to me to be such a worthy objective if we could pursue that we never made it we were obstructed at every twist and turn and sometimes you settle back and you think that's the restraining hand of God that was that avenue was not our service was not for us This is the hand of God was upon him. Constraining, restraining, assuring. A lot of assurance comes through answered prayer. It's a wonderful phrase. So much seems to depend upon him. Verse 9, it's the good hand of God was upon him. I must come to conclusion. Look at the provision Down here in verse 11. Now this is the copy of the letter that the king, Artaxerxes, gave unto Ezra the priest, the scribe. Even a scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. This is intensely interesting to me. Ezra does not tell us himself about his commission. He doesn't tell us what the king of the Medo-Persian empire gave him to do or what he applied for and got he just quotes the king's letter so here you have a, a court document you have the official decree given to you verse 12 it begins Artaxerxes king of kings Unto Ezra the priest. And there's what appears to be a greeting. Perfect peace and at such a time. The word peace is in italics. It isn't in the original. And uh, others feel that the translation has gone in a slightly wrong direction. And what the verse means to say is unto Ezra the priest a perfect scribe of the law of the God of heaven. And that's very plausible. But our translators have inserted the word peace and taken it a slightly different way. But the other way is Artaxerxes saying of Ezra, he is a a great priest and scribe. He knows his business. He's well instructed. It's an endorsement of him. I make a decree, and then you just go very speedily through the letter, through the decree, that all they of the people of Israel and of his priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with thee. That had to be said. You couldn't leave your station in those empires of old without proper consent. You couldn't just migrate about on your own. There was no freedom of movement. This is the license. Ezra, as many people as want to go with you, they'll have their freedom to leave. They may go. So there's a decree from the emperor to release people who wish to go back to Jerusalem. Verse 14, for as much as thou art sent of the king and of his seven counsellors, and this is part of his commission, I mentioned it, to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So he's going to make an official report back to the emperor. And verse 15, here's another license, to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counsellors have freely offered. So from the royal exchequer, there is a considerable grant given to Ezra to help him pursue the work at Jerusalem. These are the provisions of God. We've seen his qualifications, his appointment, and now the provisions which are given to him. And then there's more. Verse 16, another license all the silver and gold that thou canst find in all the province of Babylon that people freely give this is to Jews who remain in Babylon you have the license to mount a collection you couldn't do that either in the Babylonian Empire or in the Medo-Persian Empire which followed it you couldn't go around making collections it would immediately be assumed that you were collecting for an insurrection, that there was going to be a rebellion. You couldn't collect money for anything. So a license is given to Ezra to collect as much money as the Jews in Babylon would subscribe to help their compatriots who went to Jerusalem. Verse 17, that thou mayest buy speedily with this money the substance of offerings, And anything else that you need to do with it. Verse 18. And then as we come really to the end. Verse 21. I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, do make a decree to all the treasurers that are beyond the river. The regional governors, the Samaritans, the surrounding nations around Judah and Jerusalem are told that uh, they've got to subscribe too. And if Ezra has needs for the rebuilding of the city and the various other things he's undertaking to do, then they must freely supply him. Well, they're his enemies. They're Ezra's greatest enemies. And a decree of the emperor is going to compel them to be of assistance it won't stop the troubles but it will greatly curb the troubles and verse 22 there's a limit put on all this unto a hundred talents of silver and a hundred talents of silver is four tons of silver which in those days was a fantastic sum of money so there's a very high ceiling put on the Amount that can be collected from various sources and given. Verse 23, Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, in the books of Moses that is, in the law, let it be diligently done. And a curious statement here, end of verse 23, what provisions Ezra is given. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Now, while this can be taken another way, the most likely way to take these words is that the emperor is saying, if I don't guarantee that Ezra is given freedom to uh, advance the work in Jerusalem, I will be held to account by the God of Israel. They all say he's a pagan king, but he appears to be. But at the same time, he's at least a fearer of the true God. Then in verse 24, no tax for Levites and even Nethanims, all who are serving the temple. Then Autonomy, verse 25, and thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God that is in thine hand, you appoint magistrates and judges. That's for the whole of Judah. Now that's going to deliver him really wonderfully out of the hands of his enemies, round about, if he's given autonomy for justice and law enforcement within Judah, completely with powers of punishment, verse 26. And at the end of verse 26, that's the end of the decree. But what astonishing help and provisions given to Ezra and then Ezra's words in verse 27 an abrupt change of language and here you pass from the letter of Artaxerxes which, which was in Chaldean and verse 27 the words of Ezra which are in Hebrew. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And verse 28, And hath extended mercy unto me before the king. Mercy, is that an appropriate word? Ezra has received so much, he doesn't say, Look what I obtained from the king. Look what I negotiated. Look what I secured. He attributes it all to God. And he calls it, interesting word, mercy. Mercy because everything we have is by mercy and the more we think like that the better the mercy of God even if we've been Christians 30, 40, 50 years every step we take every blessing we receive is the mercy of God his wonderful mercy unto me before the king the king was made merciful and his counsellors were made merciful and all the king's mighty princes this is astonishing says Ezra you might have thought if the king said yes soon there would be princes antagonistic powerful Asserting themselves, chopping bits off the decree, opposing this, opposing that, putting up obstacles and difficulties. And in amazement, Ezra says, they've all been so affected and overruled by God that they're all, to a man, showing goodwill and mercy to me. This is astonishing. One minute, he's facing the Persian Empire. You couldn't do anything in those days without the emperor's consent. We say it today, and I must close, but we say it today. The world has got everything. The world's got the media. The world rules everywhere. The world shuts us off. Radio and television, largely that is. The world has the marketplace and all the platforms. The world decides who gets a voice. The world, operating through, say, the BBC, determines only evolution will be taught. Only atheism, only error. They control everything. What can we do? How can we function? How can we make a mark for the Lord? How can we get any? That's exactly the same in Ezra's time. You couldn't move without the Persian Empire and its officers and its powers clipping your wings, trimming your sails, boxing you in, shutting you up. Yet he has all this. Everything is turned completely round by the power of Almighty God. So it is today. No matter what the world thinks it controls, the people of God will be enabled to get through to all the elect, to all the redeemed, to all whom God will call as far as we should go today.